theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning, theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Good morning, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. We have some major work to do, though, with our curriculum. We do. Uh, multiple curricula across all programs because as is necessary, standards change and standards get added when we're looking at teacher preparation. Now, this is a huge change for us because it's not just changing in teacher preparation, it's changing all the educator preparation programs at Governor State University and all the teacher preparation, educator preparation programs across Illinois. That includes our administrative programs, our school sport personnel programs like school counseling that we have to now implement culturally responsive teaching and leading standards. So I'm actually happy about this revision in our curriculum. The state did have some pushback. People were saying, you're taking away our whiteness. And I think when I hear that, that we're taking away our whiteness, that people really don't understand what CRTL is, culturally responsive teaching and leading standards are. I don't think they know what it is. Well, I want to read them. There are eight main umbrella categories, and here's what they are. Gain self-awareness of self and impact on others. Promote equity value students as individuals, believe that all students are capable, support student advocacy, partner with diverse stakeholders, embrace student identities, and ensure diversity in your program and activities. And we're going to be talking more about that in a lot of different conversations we have, but particularly today. On one hand, Amy, I think it's sad that this just doesn't come with every professional educator. It seems like principles that every professional educator should come with, right? But when we really look at the scope of it, we have to realize that 80% of our teachers are white about close to 60% now of our student population are non-white. So we're coming from all places and it's not so much of coming into the classroom and just assimilating, right? It's now respecting those values and cultures of the students and actually embracing it. And how do you embed that into your curriculum so that your students feel comfortable in learning, you know, and before they can learn, they actually have to trust you, the teacher, 
but feel like you're there for them and that you want them to succeed. Well, we're going to talk to Jay Wormstead today. He has taught math at Benjamin E. Mays High School in Southwest Atlanta for over 15 years. His writing has been featured in various journals and magazines, including the Harvard Educational Review, Mathematics Teacher, and Sojourners. He can be found online at the Southeast Review, Under the Sun, and the TEDx YouTube channel, where you can watch his 2017 talk, Eating the Elephant, Ending Racism, and the Magic of Trust. He and his wife have four young children, and he rides his bicycle to and from work just about every day. Welcome to our show. Hello. Good morning. It's so great to see you. Good morning, Dr. J. Can we call you Dr. J? Oh, you're like the basketball player. I would love that. Yes. My children's friends all call me. Dr. J hanging out with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy today. Good to have you. I'm going to jump right in here. Amy and I, before you came on, we were talking about culturally responsive and how important it is because of that disproportion between the teacher ethnicity and the student population. But I followed you, your blogs. So I've been reading your blogs, met your TED Talks, and you've become quite the expert on your own. You've tackled this and you've become quite the expert on topics related to this disproportion and how teachers have an impact. Why is the topic of interest to you and what is the goal of you writing and presenting about this topic? First off, again, thanks for having me this morning, giving me the chance to talk to y'all about white teachers. I'm just really interested in white teachers. I am white and I've been teaching for 16 years. I, in that time, have almost exclusively taught black students. I teach in a part of Atlanta where we just mostly are black and white. The west side of Atlanta, the east side of Atlanta has, has a lot more international diversity than we have here. So I've mostly taught black students my whole professional career. And I, like a lot of white people, started off my journey thinking that didn't matter, that I was white and they were black for the most part, and that folks are folks and people are people. And it was a kind of a slow burn of a realization for me that race that does matter. And so that journey of, of myself of coming to that place just makes me really passionate about spreading that knowledge to other white teachers, because there's a lot of us out there, as I know you guys have talked about before. So we've talked about implementing the culturally responsive teaching and leading standards in our curriculum. And that's what's really driving us forward with any changes we're making in educator preparation. One part of our culturally responsive standards is for educators to gain self-awareness of self and impact on others. Now, you have published extensively on your experience being a white teacher in Black spaces. Do you think reflective writing helps you with this self-awareness? And how would you recommend others approach the task of self-awareness? Absolutely. I think journaling and reflective writing, even if it's at a base level of what someone might call a diary all the way up until some more structured stuff that you might do in in a classroom environment where you're sharing with others, I think it's essential. I, I kind of run the gamut of belief about this in terms of I've kept a diary slash a journal my whole life and in just kind of an informal space. You know, I, I stuff them all on the top of my closets. Um, those are very informal. Those are just for me. I, I have spaces on my computer where I more intentionally write about certain things. And that's where a lot of my race thought started. This is part of my dissertation work. When I earned my PhD about eight years ago is I 
did a lot of work about self-storying and autoethnography and what it means to just kind of interrogate on your own or in a small cohort of people these difficult experiences. Race in America is a, a <laughs> the big old scar we're constantly picking at, right? Why most white people get to the place where they haven't thought about it or don't want to think about it because we have that luxury to avoid it. And so to start picking at that, you can do it on your own, but there's a lot of skills and tactics you can do in, in small groups. And I, and I worked on this in my dissertation. So all that is like, yeah, huge commercial for self-storying, journaling, diarying, small group writing and sharing, anything you can do to really get your story done on paper, because that helps you be able to speak about it later. Right. And speaking of self-awareness, what were your perceived notions about race when you started teaching in 2006? And 16 years later, how has that changed? I know that's a big question. Yeah, it's a big question, but it's so important because I, and I've kind of alluded to this already, but it's an embarrassing question to say that I was 30 years old when I began teaching. I was a 30-year-old white man. And although this is a a parallel, I had been married for several years at that point and kind of been working on what it means to grow up as a man in America and how that bumps up against my wife as a woman and how that bumps up against the patriarchy when you're in an intimate space with somebody else, like the home, trying to share a home together. And it had never occurred to me that there would be a parallel like that between being Black or being white. And that's just like, I hope that that's not a luxury we're affording our white children these days. But I do fear with all this backlash to critical race theory and, and the way that politics are trying to silence talk about race, that we may still be raising generations of white kids that can grow up and think it doesn't matter. But I was one of those white kids that grew up and thought it didn't matter. So at 30 years old, as enlightened as I would have said, I was about the patriarchy and misogyny and all those things. And, and as aware as I was of being a math teacher and a man in a space that typically doesn't privilege girls, it never occurred to me that being a white teacher would be privileging in any way to my Black students through my own biases and problems. That's how I felt. I just, I would have probably sat down and debated, defended that, yeah, fo- People are people, folks are folks, I don't see color, math is math, two plus two always equals four. There's no reason to think that race has anything to do with this. And I don't think that at all anymore. But how we get from there to here is a long, a long story. So I'll uh, I'll stop for a second, let you jump in. All right, I'll jump in here. So being white in black spaces, what was your reality then? 30-year-old teacher entering the classroom. So most teachers in America are, are white, 80% or something like that. But in Atlanta, and specifically certain parts of Atlanta, that's not true at all. There was whole schools that are, uh, the staff is almost entirely black. So I taught at one of those schools for a long, long time where I was one of only a couple, not just white, there were no white students, but there were no white teachers either. And most years, the number of people that were from the continental India outnumbered the number of white people in the building. That wasn't many. <laughs> like, that's not a, a thing of, oh, we had a lot of continental Indians. We did not. So we just had more continental Indians than we did white people because both those numbers were vanishingly small. So my point was, is I always saw myself as a minority. It was clear and obvious, but I think like a lot of white people, that was a, a bad thing for me because it gave me this feeling of, oh, I know what it's like. When talk of race or racism would come up, I would instantly kind of deflect and defend and just be like, oh, well, I understand race and racism because I'm white in this almost entirely black space. I, I get it. I get what it's like to be the minority or to be looked at as scam. I, I get that feeling of like walking through a store and having somebody follow me just because of the color of my skin, because I stick out in the hallways here. 
I didn't write any articles about that. That's a garbage take, but I definitely like had that in the back of my mind as a reflexive defense about why race still didn't matter because, well, look, I'm here and it's all the same. I'm white in a black space and a minority. And that means I get it. And again, back to this, like people are people, folks are folks. We can all see the same point of view. In my field, science research also in higher ed administration, being in white spaces just became a norm for me. And I didn't notice it after a while. I didn't notice that I was the only black person in the room after a while because so many years. What about you? Because of your experience, are you comfortable in black spaces, whether it's your classroom now or somewhere else where you find yourself in black spaces? Yes. So a couple of years after I started teaching, I went back to work on my PhD at Georgia State University, which was just a couple of miles away from my school. I could bike to school and then bike to Georgia State and then bike home all, all on the same day. And, and my experience at Georgia State was very similar to my experience at the high school where I was teaching and the middle school I teach now. And that I would always, almost always the only white man in the room. And if there was another white person, it would almost always be a woman because these were all teacher ed classes. And this was Atlanta. So there was a lot of black women, a lot of black men, a couple white women, and like usually one white man, me. And probably that was the time that I started to interrogate that feeling. What does it look like to go past this kind of facile thought that like, I understand (laughs) race and racism now. And I started pushing into it, both in these classes where there was structure to push into it, right? Where our professors were giving us space to kind of talk this out together. And then also trying to take that back into my classroom. I went through probably like five or six years where and this is just advice I would offer to any young teacher where I just pushed into uncomfortable places and conversations. There's so much crosstalk in a classroom and teachers, we always making choices every day about what we engage in or what we don't, right? I don't really engage and talk about the MBA because I don't know anything about it. And that's no big deal. But for years when kids were, when crosstalk would like veer towards race, I would, instead of like walking away from it, I would try to walk into it and I would try to have conversations with children, same with adults in the building and the adults outside the building and, and people that I knew socially, people that I was friends with, instead of like stepping back from those racialized conversations, which I think is the default option most white people take, I tried to step in. And after probably six or seven years of that kind of awkwardness, and I by I say awkward, I don't mean that the conversations were necessarily awkward, but it felt awkward to me as a white person trying to engage in something that white people are mostly taught not to do growing up. I did get to a place that you just kind of get used to it. And then it kind of normalizes. That was a good thing on the other side of all that awkward work. And again, I I use the word awkward, like kind of intentionally, because it's a good awkwardness. Well, you talked about at the very beginning of teaching, the race doesn't matter attitude or approach. When did that change? And how do you use these insights to promote equity in your classroom? Yeah. So For years, I thought I had kind of a unicorn event in that, like, I started teaching when most people outside of Illinois hadn't heard of Barack Obama. That was when I began teaching. And then within a couple of years, he had declared, run, and won the presidency. And the school I taught in was a historically black, famous school named after Dr. Martin Luther King. When Barack Obama got elected, we shut down school the next day and, like, watched the news all day. And we watched the speeches over and over again. It was just, it was like being at this place that day was just like, I'll never forget what that day was like. Just for me, as a, it felt like definitely being an outsider. Um, I can I voted for Obama the day before, but getting to go down to this like all black space, historically Atlanta spot, and like be a part of their celebration of not just as 
Democrats or uh, Americans, but as Black Americans. Like it was just it was being in there was was awesome. And I, and my point was is is that opened up doors for me. Just the run of Barack Obama, and then the backlash to Barack Obama. Even as a math teacher, it opened up avenues for me to have conversations with students. That was part of that kind of awkward transition where I injected myself in places, and that was a great thing for me. It helped me like arc my teaching career and and get used to race as a normalized construct. But it's good that you leaned into those difficult conversations. You know, this last years, there's so many opportunities where you can lean into it or you can run away from it. And certainly you've leaned into those conversations. One of the things you wrote is because many of us grew up in racial isolation, we learned about Black people from the media we consumed. And yet this media news and entertainment overtly played on dangerous stereotypes. I agree. Stereotypes about groups, people from seeing the individual. So my question to you, how do you value students as individuals, you know, help them value themselves? This is in your face every day. Yeah. I mean, that's the central challenge for all educators. You know, no matter how much we might phenotypically or demographically relate to our children, our students, we're still at minimum a generation older than them. And to them, that feels like a gulf. Now, once you're mid-career like me, I'm two generations removed from my eighth graders, right? Sometimes they think it's like three. So we have these, these children that are like generations removed from me. There's a technological divide. There's a racial divide. There's for half my students, there's a gender divide. There's a largely just a class divide. Uh, most teachers are middle class, and that's not true around the country in terms of uh, salaries. Some teachers are much more struggling than others, but most teachers are middle class, and a large proportion of uh, public school students are not uh, middle class by whatever definition you're using. So there's that divide too. I guess my point to loop back to like how to see students as individuals is there's a temptation for me to see, for the white kids in my room, for me to over-identify with them, right? But the reality is, it's like a toss of the dice, whether that white kid's much more like me than the black child next to them, because the the white kid might be really, like I said, into the NBA, and the black kid might be really into Dungeons and Dragons, and the Dungeons and Dragons kid is going to have more to talk about with me than the NBA kid. And so how do we um, get past all these stereotypes is one, we just, again, we just have to talk. We just have to have these awkward conversations. We have to interject ourselves into the crosstalk of the room and, and, and get to know our kids. And we're not going to get to know them just by listening. We're going to have to get to know them by entering in and talking. And then you, you can figure out like who, who likes this and who likes that and which kids like you and which kid isn't. And as long as you can buy you the kid that likes the NBA, even if you are an NFL person, all that's really great, like figuring out those differences between you and the kids. And then you can really start drilling down into what the difference is between you and the kids that look like you and the kids that don't look like you and the similarities between you and the kids that don't look like you. I, I just, I can't say enough about the need for teachers to get to know them as best they can and to try to listen to what they're talking about as best they can and to try to assimilate all that. It's what makes life interesting is that not everyone's the same, right? You don't have to lean out of a conversation that you don't understand, but you also don't have to pretend you understand it. You could just find this liminal space in between of, of being like, you know what? I'm a middle-aged white guy who doesn't know anything about TikTok, but like I can sit here and listen and try to like learn a little bit about it. We're talking to Dr. John Wamstead. He is a veteran teacher now. For me, you're most notable for talking about uncomfortable conversations about race. As teachers impact the lives of so many students, all these conversations, your blogs, your research, the things that you write about are very important. 
We're hanging out with Dr. J, having uncomfortable conversations and hopes that they may help teachers. But before you joined us, Dr. J, Amy and I, we were discussing culturally responsive teaching and leading standards. This is something that we're now mandated to implement into our educator preparation curriculum for teachers, for administrators, and for school support personnel like school counselors. We have really leaned into this and we're working on it. We've really embraced it. Not everyone embraced standards. So Illinois adopted eight essential standards, 64 substandards. Again, while we strongly supported this, there was legislation approval. That approval did not go through quickly or without a lot of pushback. Some thought that, oh, you're taking away our whiteness, as Amy and I were talking about earlier. What are your thoughts about adding the CRTL standards? Well, I think what they do is they help us get past the teacher-centered classroom or the, the sage on a stage, you know, they call it, it, where I have the knowledge and I'll stand in the front and I will disseminate the knowledge and you will absorb the knowledge and then I will test you on the knowledge and you will show me that you have absorbed the knowledge. And that's so antithetical to <laughs> everything that uh, we really know about kind of both human nature, but definitely like adolescence. Uh, adolescence, it's just not a time of life when un mitigated authority like rings well for them. And I, I can say that both as having taught adolescence my whole life, but also like living with them, they don't do well with Sage on a stage. And we can cow them into being afraid and doing it. Like we can threaten them with grades and we can threaten them with college applications. We can threaten them with scholarship money and all these things we do to get kids to like behave and like absorb the Sage on a stage model. That'll work for some kids. It doesn't work for all kids. A better way to educate children is to get to know them, is to know what they're like, is to value their identities. That includes race, but it goes way past race. It's to give them space to show you what they're struggling with in terms of their, their personal lives from a race point of view, from a home point of view, if whatever, if that's appropriate. I mean, all of that, there's appropriate and inappropriate, obviously. But without that identity piece, like we're missing what adolescents value. Adolescents value connection and relationship. And they reject authority kind of naturally. And we have created a school system that tries to jam them into an authoritative learning model. And that's not working nationwide. That's my initial gut about, about these eight standards is that they value children for who they are. We've, we've got to reach them as humans. Getting to know students as individuals and valuing them as individuals is the first step. But can you share some strategies that teachers can implement to be more inclusive once they do know who their students are? So I think the most important thing is, like you said, like it's all well and good to get to know them, but then like we have to change our practices based on what we know, right? Like I keep coming back to the MBA. The MBA is really not like the most important thing about the teaching and learning. It's great, like know what your kids like and what they don't like, but it's more important to know like how they function best and how, how they learn best, right? So that we can change the way we're running our room. And, and as educators, we don't like to change our room. We, we ran things one way and it worked and we, we, we'll, we'll tweak according to the way we feel, but we, we're resistant to tweaking from any outside force. The, the most important thing about getting to know the children is to figure out like which kid like desperately wants to work in a group and to facilitate that kid working in a group, even if that's not our gut nature is to allow group work for this specific assignment or to figure out which kid like hates working in a group, not 
force them into a group because it's going to be a detriment to them on this lesson. And some kids, some kids need to stretch and grow just like humans need to stretch and grow. And then, gosh, this is a whole nother piece is once we know our kids, then figuring out like <laughs> which way the wind is blowing on any specific day, right? So they come in and one day they're in a great mood and you can get a thousand things done with this kid. And one day they're not in a great mood. And like, you got to know wh- wh- when to push and when not to push. And But to do that, you got to know the kid. I totally agree when you have that intimate relationship with that student and you know you feel them and they know that you feel them. And that, and when you can make that connection with your students, it makes all the difference in the world. And teachers are in such a unique place where they have all of this diversity around them, not just in ethnicity, but how they learn and, and gender and all of those things and religion, all those things. And I think it's just amazing for teachers to be in the situation where they can absorb and learn from all of their students. You know, that's one of the reasons that we had whole students so, so many times where we've had students from Columbia and just stay with us because it was a learning experience for our family as well. You know, when we discuss the CRTL standard, one of the things that frustrates me is that we always talk about what we're currently doing. And we do it as though we're defending ourselves, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we rarely discuss what are we not doing and what can we do differently? Because we wouldn't be having the conversation if everything was perfect. Right. So what is your advice or strategy to say partner with diverse stakeholders? And I, I bring this up because Amy and I, we are strong advocates for partnering with diverse stakeholders. Yeah. I just don't understand teachers that don't, that aren't energized on the whole with their classrooms, right? I, I get like, we all have days, but like, it is just such a joy and a privilege most days to walk in and like, like bounce off the energy of these children and to learn about this and learn about that and to, to be fueled by this and to be fueled by that. And there's nothing sadder to me than watching a teacher that clearly has lost that vibe, that joy. And they're just like doing a job because boy, like it is a privilege to like be in that room most, again, most days, some days are not a privilege as much as others, but most days it's just such a privilege to be in that room and get to be fueled by learning about other people. It's just such a great thing. Yeah. We have teachers who may have lost the energy, but I'm hoping that most teachers walk in with a philosophy that all students are capable. Yeah. But there's still that huge achievement gap and it exists in P12. It exists at the college level. What about this philosophy being put into action that all students are capable? Because I think I want to come back to the conversation about diverse stakeholders. There's got to be a connection there. The phrase that I've, I've heard from our district was all students can learn, right? That's it's the same thing as all students are capable. Most teachers, almost all of us, of course, we believe that. And of course, we're excited, at least at the start of the year, to like go in. Like, like very, very few people, it's not a job you do for the paycheck. Nobody gets into teaching to get rich. We get into teaching because there's an excitement. What do we do with that when we, when we walk into the room and we look at that data, right? What you, like 83% of Asian students graduate on time and that goes down to like 53% indigenous people. It's like, that's the proof of the pudding that like something's off, right? The bulk of my experience has been teaching high school where students will come in and they will just be like really behind you'll have a bunch of 10th graders in front of you and they'll test out at sixth grade, seventh grade math. The, the, that data is really easy to acquire and it's really easy to verify also. I mean, one, that explains what's going on. 
it doesn't explain how, how they got there. What do you do with that as a teacher? And what a lot of teachers do is they get real discouraged and they'll say, some of these kids just don't want to learn, right? Um, some of these kids just don't care. I'm overusing this phrase, but that's also a garbage take because in 16 years of teaching two or 3,000 kids, I've probably seen like two kids that maybe really legit weren't going to try and didn't try. Now, I've seen a lot of kids that like I lost and they, they gave up because I taught the wrong way, taught, taught over the head, taught sideways, whatever. I lost them. But like kids don't come to school and not want to do school. Like they just don't, especially not at the high school level. They've got other options if they didn't want to try to take care of school. What we need to do and the reality of the day to day, like makes us go, yeah, all students can learn, but Billy doesn't want to learn. I can tell the way he's sleeping or Sammy doesn't want to learn. I can tell the way he's stared out the window or, or Jenny doesn't want to learn because I can tell because she's on her phone the whole time. It goes back to that, for that relationship identity pieces. We've got to figure out, well, what, why is, what, what's going on with Billy that, that he's staring out the window? But like, what's going on with Jenny that she won't put her phone down and doesn't want to do my math? It's not that she doesn't want to learn. It's just that something about my engagement is off compared to her phone. Now, fighting phones is a hard thing. That's a whole podcast. It's still, I've got to figure out how to tweak my engagement, my vibe, my, my presence, my, my teaching so that this kid will put their phone down and just do math because they do want to learn. They are, they're here for a reason. And I'm glad that you're taking that accountability as I think you should. I think our profession changed from teaching to student learning. You know, what's your profession? Student learning instead mm. of teaching because you can teach all day and no one learn. I think that we really need to change our profession, our title to student learning. And then really rethink what that looks like. I visited a local school and Amy's been to the school multiple times, developed a partnership with the school where the student population was predominantly Black and the teaching and administrative population was predominantly white, overwhelmingly white. And one of the administrators, he was walking through the halls, giving kids high fives, you know, these special handshakes that they had. And telling one of the girls, hey, I like your crisscross goddess braids, which was totally new to me. I had no idea what they were talking about. And I saw him as someone who was respected, accepted, and embraced students' identity. Because he took the time to know these special handshakes and the different names of braids. And he, he just really took the time to get into their culture and to be part of their culture. What are some of the things that you do intentionally or unintentionally to embrace students' identity? Because I think this is good for teachers. The things that you do, do you think they came naturally or do you think you really had to work on them? And when did they become natural to you? So to, to answer the last one first, like absolutely not. It didn't come naturally. Very little good in life happens on its own, right? It's like learning to play an instrument takes practice. This is maybe a little like a little silly, but it worked for me for years and years up until now. Still, I, I've always just had music in my classroom when it's appropriate to have music in the classroom. So going back to my first classroom when I had a little CD player in the room and I probably had like 15 or 20 CDs and, and I would play them and then going through the iTunes era now into Spotify where I work really intentionally about playing music that I like. And then taking requests from the kids about stuff that they like and like letting that into conversations about what's going on in the music world. And that all 
and I create playlists that go with different classes and, and, and I roll them over from year to year and change them. And I've learned some great music that I never knew from my students. Music, it's important to me. And I guess I, I, I'm bringing that up because it was an easy way to get into their world and to let them into my world, right? I'm not encouraging teachers to just like let the kids run the playlist in the room. Like that's not necessarily even helpful too. Right, right. I think that's really great. You know, it reminds me of my husband. He just retired, recently retired as a middle school teacher and every day, and he was an art teacher and he would play music all day. Every day was a different genre. So he introduced the kids to different genre and Friday was student pick. So at the beginning of the week, they would pick. So I've had my share of rap music and other music because we'd have to listen to it throughout the week to determine what's appropriate, what's not appropriate (laughs) so that he can select. And then they would get a blast. Like if he comes in there singing something, he knew what the song was. That's funny to them. And they're like, oh, he, you know me, you know me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And they want, they want to know that you see me, you know me. And then they open up. And when they open up, learning can start to take place. Students have to be ready to learn before learning can take place. And middle schoolers are still very impressionable where they respond according to how much they like you. And, and thinking about your, your husband's classroom, because I, you could see in an art room, you could just play music the whole time. But I was also thinking like, like a lot of teachers are into like the decor of their room. They'll get lamps instead of overhead lights and the decoration. And like, that's great because that's not really me. Like I, I'm not wired that way, but I'm a, more of a music vibe kind of guy. But my point is that I think those unconscious signals that the kids get when they come into the room, they matter so much. What matters is that you sync it to your personality as an educator and then also tailor it with them. The kids don't like the lamps. Like you can't force them to keep the lamps on. And if you're going to have decorations on your wall, you should have the kids be involved in making them, right? And again, if you're going to be a music guy or girl, you should have the children be involved in like creating that vibe. And so whatever that mood in the room is should be both representative of your personality, but also should be something you co-create with them so that you can send them that signal from the get-go that, hey, you're in my room and we're here and we're together and we're a team and all that stuff they get from the moment they come in and hear a song that, hey, I'm the one that told Mr. Wong said this is a good song. Like, that's my song. And I'm like, well, now it's my song. It's a, it's a whole like, it's like a hug without touching. You make some really good points about how to get to know students, how to be inclusive in your classroom and really think about our positionality and how we position ourselves in the classroom and the positions students take. This has really been a great conversation talking about our direction with the culturally responsive teaching and leading standards and what we can do as that one individual in the classroom. We can talk about the education landscape across the nation, but when it comes to the school day, we are but one person, but each person can make a a big difference in students' lives. They will remember how we made them feel in the classroom. Yeah, and I'm sure all your students will remember Dr. J and the impact that you've had It has been a joy hanging out with you this morning. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on and just let me sit here and talk at you about school. I would do this all day if somebody would let me. Yeah. It's great to talk about our students, but thank you. And I'm sure we will meet up in the future. Tons to talk about. Keep doing the wonderful things that you're doing. Keep writing your blog, doing your research, TED Talks. 
keep doing what you're doing. I think the work that you're doing is amazing and extremely important. I appreciate you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. <laughs>